your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2. This evening's study is going to be in verses 9 through 20, the second part of uh, chapter 2. And it's entitled, Assessing the Work. Assessing the Work. Nehemiah, at this point, has the king's permission to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God was now about to give Nehemiah the desire of his heart. But a lot of work and a lot of opposition stood between him and finishing the walls. But that didn't take away Nehemiah's excitement. That didn't take away his enthusiasm that he had when he started this great venture of faith. He still wanted to go. He still wanted to do the work. It would be approximately three months by the time Nehemiah got to Jerusalem from Shushan, depending on which way he went. We do know that the walls were finished in the month of Elul, according to chapter 6, verse 15, which is our September. Meaning that in about five months from the time Nehemiah got the okay in Nisan, which is our April, the walls were to be finished. Since it took them only 52 days, according to chapter 6, 15, verse 15, this leaves a little over three months for traveling time and to set up his building program. All of this tells us that Nehemiah was no slacker. Nehemiah wasn't a, 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 a time waster. Nehemiah was diligent in using his time. Look at verse 9 now as we begin the second part of our, our chapter this evening. Beginning with verse 9. Again, it says, uh, Nehemiah, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now, you could say that these letters that Nehemiah had were kind of like passports. Nehemiah was smart to pay attention to the legal matters that would be involved, you know, in his building program. It'd be like building a, a structure of some sort. You know, we'd, we'd go to the city, we get building permits, we get everything we need to make sure that it's done correctly and it's, you know, within the, the laws of the land. It wouldn't stop all the attacks, though, by governor, government officials. But it would stop a lot of other attacks, you know, when he got these, uh, these again, these, uh, took care of these legal matters. Uh, it would stop a lot of other attacks and it would stop the enemy from any uh, truthful accusations. That is, things that were done illegally by Nehemiah that they could be accused of. The enemy attacks us enough without us giving him any help. Without us giving him more ammunition to use against us for not diligently taking care of the things that we need to take care of. Nehemiah shows all through his life that he was a stickler for doing things the right way. And we should be too, especially you know, when we're serving God and doing his work. He didn't ignore his duties and he didn't ignore requirements that were necessary. Doing things right is a good habit. And it's important when it comes to doing our spiritual life uh, again uh, as well. If we're careless about matters in our secular life, we'll be careless in our spiritual life. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, 5, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And, and, and Paul was, was comparing the, the life of a servant of Christ to, to you know, participate in the Olympics. He said, you're not going to get crowned unless you uh, abide according to the rules. And it's the same thing in our life with Christ. We need to abide by the rules, which is the word of God, if we're going to receive the crown. Verse 10, 
Nehemiah goes on to say, When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of it, they were deeply, notice, deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Now, obviously, not everybody was excited about Nehemiah coming to town. Some of them were really bothered by it. The enemy was angry because he came, that is, Nehemiah came to help out the Jews. And this won't be the first time we hear about them being angry with Nehemiah's arrival and plans and their opposition to him and his work. Now, as a servant of God and serving God, we must expect opposition. No ands, ifs, or buts. If you are doing a work for God, you are going to run into opposition. And especially when we do right. When we preach what's right. When we stand up for what's right. Not everybody is going to be happy about it. Opposition is always there with the work and the way of God. Nehemiah was going to do a great work. But we see here that there were some people that were really strongly against it. You see, this was also true about Jesus. After Jesus healed a man, some of the people were filled with rage. That means madness expressing itself in rage. And as soon as a man or a woman gets excited about living for God and serving him, the enemy will rage. He will get angry. And when God's man or God's woman starts encouraging a work that honors God, the devil will get this person out there, uh, will get his person to come out there against the work. Opposition to, for doing good is as sure as the sun comes up every morning. But again, this shouldn't stress us out. It shouldn't discourage us from living for God. It should help us prepare for dealing with and overcoming the enemy. Adequate preparation depends on adequate warning. And the scripture gives us plenty of warning about the enemy. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, We are not ignorant of his devices. The opposers were two leaders named Sanballat and Tobiah. Another leader, Geshem, is mentioned later in our study, but for now, we're dealing with Sanballat and Tobiah. They show how really wicked they are to be so deeply agitated about something that God is glad about. God was totally in favor of helping the Jews, his chosen people. God had worked in a powerful way to get Nehemiah the authorization he needed to come to Jerusalem to bring the needed changes there. But these two, Sanballat and Tobiah, fought tooth and nail against Nehemiah because they were not in the will of God. They were united with the devil, working for the devil. And the devil does not want God's plans to go forward and to be successful. These men disguised how they really felt by giving other reasons as to why they were so against the Jews' well-being. But God's word shows us man's heart. It says in verse 10, notice, they were deeply disturbed. Deeply disturbed. The word of God shows that w exactly what was really in their heart. Many church rebels try to hide their, hide their opposition to God's work. Because if the truth were known about what was in their heart, it would show that they also were deeply disturbed at the progress in God's work because their heart is at odds with God's ways and God's work. But again, woe to that person or person who is deeply disturbed when God is glad. Nehemiah came to check on the welfare of the children of Israel. We should all be concerned about the welfare of God's people and God's work. 
But a lot of times people aren't. There were a lot of other Jews in Jerusalem who had been there a long time. But it didn't seem to bother them that the walls were broken down. It didn't seem to bother them that they had a bad testimony. They never thought it was a reproach or a disgrace against God's name. They were no threat to the devil. A lot of people in churches all over are like these Jews who didn't care about the needs of the people or the church. So the only thing they do is encourage the weakening of the work of God. They hinder the work just as much as the Sanballats and the Tobias. Look at verses 11 through 16 now. So I came to Jerusalem as w- and was there three days. Then I rose in the night and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one that, uh, on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went onto the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in, uh, in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and he inspects the walls. The first thing that he did before rebuilding the walls was to inspect them. But notice what he did before he even inspected the walls. Look at the verse again, 11. He says, so I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Notice, then I arose in the night. It says he rested for three days. It had been a long, hard trip for him. Ezra Ezra did the same thing in chapter 8, verse 32 of Ezra. Now, rest isn't laziness. Because, uh, you see, we can't do our best if we don't rest our body. And before making detailed plans, Nehemiah made a very careful survey of the situation, of everything that was needed. He made a detailed assessment of the people that were available. Nehemiah needed to do this first so that he knew firsthand what he needed in order to do the job and how he was going to solve the problem. In Shushan, they told him about the ruins, but he goes there and he sees them for himself now. It's easy to sit back and make plans for what you're going to do, even without knowing what you're dealing with. Now, in your head, it may sound good. It may be a great plan. But then when you get there and you see what needs to be done, you realize, well, this isn't going to work. This is not realistic. Nehemiah's inspection was thorough. Nehemiah got all the facts. Nehemiah personally saw how bad things really were. And in verse 14, he mentioned that in one place, the animal that he was riding on couldn't even pass. It showed how closely he checked things out. Nehemiah was a man who did the job right, and he did it completely. He didn't do a halfway job, or he didn't do just enough to get by. You see, halfway jobs and doing just enough to get by, it shows the work of the flesh and not of faith. And you know what? He did it secretly. It says in verse 12 and 16, he didn't let anybody know where he, that he was going. He didn't let the officials know. He, he, did, he just kept it to himself. 
Now, this was another smart, smart move by Nehemiah, and it was smart for a couple of reasons. First, not telling anybody kept the enemy from finding out. And so it kept the enemy from getting in the way of the work sooner than they would because it delayed the enemy from learning about Nehemiah's plan. Now, the, now the enemy will find out soon enough what's going to be done. But see, keeping them in the dark as long as he could uh, at the start helps to delay their attack and their opposition, and it helps better to overcome their attack. This is one reason why we need to know about the certainty of the enemy's attack. It helps us to walk carefully and thoughtfully to hinder their oppositions as much as possible. The second thing we learn from Nehemiah not telling anybody what he was doing by keeping it secret, it kept the Jews from hindering the work themselves. You see, Nehemiah wanted his plans well laid out before he showed them to the Jews. If he would have told them earlier, somebody would have probably, you know, blabbed it to the enemy because some of them were pretty friendly with the enemy, according to chapter 13, verse 4. Not only that, like, like the, the, the church troublemakers, they would cause problems either criticizing the plan or, or trying to tell Nehemiah what to do. And interferences like that at the start of, of, of a project can often kill or weaken uh, many good pro, uh, projects you know, that, that God wants to do. We, can't, we, we have to be careful about the information that we tell people. We can't trust everybody. We need to know. We need to be as careful as we can about who we tell certain things. And that's one important reason why, you know, again, th those that, that you church for leaders and on your boards and your committees, uh, they need to be men of, of high character. Once the work was planned satisfactorily, then Nehemiah could go to the people and he could ask for their help and he could ask for their cooperation in doing the work. In asking the people for the help, he gave them three reasons for rebuilding the temple walls. Look at verse 17. He tells them, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in and how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. He says, Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. The first thing he tells them, the first reason he gives them for rebuilding is, hey, guys, look at the distress of the city. You see, before you can get people to do something, you have to get them to see the need. But even after they see the need, sometimes they're still not willing to do anything. So Nehemiah starts off by getting people to see the need. And he talks to them about the distress and the disgrace that they were in because the walls were broken down. You see, the distress and the, the great disgrace, it, it, it dishonors God. And they have to do what they can to stop dishonoring God. And the way they can do that is to help Nehemiah build the walls around Jerusalem. Now, you would think that Nehemiah wouldn't have to impress upon the people in strong words how serious their condition is because they should have known. And it, it, they should have been burdened by it. It should, have been, it should have weighed heavy on their heart. But a lot of times, that's the way it is with some people. You know what? They get so used to bad situations in their life, in the church, in society, they don't recognize how really great their needs are. People can be in deep trouble because of sin. 
and still not see how much they need Jesus Christ or help of any kind. Jesus said to the lukewarm church in Revelation 3.17, You are wretched, you are miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, they thought everything was good. It's amazing how God sees things so much different than we do. The constant exposure to sin, it often causes people to stop being aware of the presence of the horrible stench of sin. You know, I, I've seen programs at time where, where you know, uh, somebody calls the police on a neighbor because, you know, they, they got a bunch of animals in the house and they're just living you know, in poor conditions. And they go in there and the stench is so terrible, they run out. But the person is sitting there living in there. They've gotten used to it. They've been surrounded by it for so long. Getting used to sin is a big danger to man because it hinders them from doing anything about their sin. It makes them easy victims of sin. The Israelites have been exposed to the fallen walls for so many years, it didn't bother them. We can look at our country. It has gotten so used to the stench of sin and decay, it doesn't bother them. Morally and spiritually to the point that it's hard to get people to realize what bad shape our society is in. And society says we're progressing. We're evolving. When in reality, we're digressing. Our society is so used to the stench of alcoholism and drug abuse and abortion and pornography and divorce and fornication and all the latest psychological babble. And in a lot of churches, many of the members have also gotten used to the rundown conditions of, of their buildings and their grounds that they don't seem interested in fixing the problems anymore. That dishonors God big time. It reflects on our God. This is not a good situation that, that, that the people of Jerusalem are in. And even when Nehemiah comes and tries to stir up the people, not many of them responded. There just seemed to be a, a, a resistance. A lack of interest. The second reason that Nehemiah tells the people that we need to do the work. Notice verse 18. He goes on to say. And I told them on the hand. Uh, I, and I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. And also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let's rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. He tells them it's the work of God. He's not only, is it dishonoring to God? That was the first thing. He said, this is a work of God. This is another reason given to recruit the workers. God was moving in a wonderful way and he was wanting to restore the walls. Restoring the walls was possible now. When we see God dealing, especially with some circumstance or people, man, it should encourage us to move forward in our work for the Lord. God had worked powerfully for Nehemiah in order to make it possible for him to go to Jerusalem and to get the authorization and the things he needed to do the work. And the people should have seen that. They should have seen, man, God is with us. That was a good reason for the Israelites to roll up their sleeves and say, hey, man, let's do it. Let's build a wall. When God is working in great and obvious ways, it's not only a good reason to get busy helping with the work, but it's also a great encouragement to keep working, to keep helping with the work. But the king said to Noah, to Nehemiah in verse 18 was another reason for trying to get their support for the work. And that is King Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah permission to do the work. He says, hey guys, I got the king's backing. 
This wasn't just proof of God's work, but Nehemiah also had the backing of the government, which would be a good and encouraging reason to get involved in the work. So look at the response of the people. Let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. What a great response to Nehemiah's call for people to help. It was important that the people help him because, you see, Nehemiah couldn't do it all by himself. He needed the help of a lot of people if the work was going to get done. And and again, this is important for, for the church of Jesus Christ to recognize more. You know, and a, a lot of times, you know, the, the church's thinking is that the, the, the pastors and the leaders, you know, it, it, they're supposed to do all of the work. They're to make every hospital call. They're to go to pray for everybody. He, he's to take every counseling appointment. He's to do all the weddings, all the funerals, and, and prepare for the studies all through the week. We see in Acts 6, 2, and 4, this was a, one of the difficulties that the disciples were having. It says in Acts 6, 2, 4, So the twelve called a meeting of all believers. They said, We apostles should spend our time, notice, teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word of God. The pastor is needed to lead the people like the Jews needed to lead the leadership of Nehemiah. But neither can the pastor or or the leaders and Nehemiah do all the work any more than uh, Nehemiah could build the walls by himself. And too many times, that's why not much gets done. Because there's just not enough help. The people don't avail themselves. And in some churches, the sand ballots and the Tobias, you know, aren't even needed to oppose the work to stop it. Just because there's not enough to help. The people's response here was, let's rise up and build. It encouraged each other. They encouraged each other to take on the job. Let's do the work. The Jews in Jerusalem didn't grumble and complain after Nehemiah told them what it was going to take to do the job. Instead, they used their lips to encourage each other to help build the wall. And when needed, they encouraged each other to keep going. And that's what we need more of in the work of God as we work with, uh, serve God. You know, because, uh, you know, too many times people put down God's work, discourage the people, and, and, and they don't get involved in God's work. We need to be united in the work of God because it's important. It's a major factor. Being united and serving God together is a major factor in getting God's work done. So in verse 18, they set, they, it says, they set their hands to do this good work. This means they were energetic in doing the work. These people did more than just talk. They were people of action. And they did the work with great vigor and enthusiasm. That's why it's not surprising that they got the walls done in 52 days. We're exhorted in Ecclesiastes 9.10. Solomon said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with all of your might. But too many times we ignore Solomon's exhortation. We're not interested in working hard for the Lord. We're not interested in accomplishing much. And we end up slowing down the work. And, And again, it's, 
it, it just hinders God's, God's service. There's more opposition to God's work and his workers still. Here it says in verse 10, they were more, okay, they said it would deeply disturb, but uh, it was even more than that. Now they were doing something to stop it. Being deeply disturbed drove them to try to stop the work of God. Look at verse 19 now. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? The third thing they do here now is attack the people. They attack Nehemiah and his work in Jerusalem. Now we have somebody else joining in the opposition. This, this, this man named Geshem. He joins the opposition. And as people's, God's people grow in support to do the work of God, you, get, you see the opposition will go, grow in support as well. They want to stop the work of God. And these men attacked in a couple of ways. They started here by scorning and slandering. Notice it says that they laughed at us and they despised us. Satan is always trying to make God's way and God's people look stupid and ridiculous. You're going to do what? You believe what? God's will is ridiculed because the world looks at it as unreasonable. It looks at it as brainless. It looks at it as out of date. So behind the time, so behind culture and its progress. The Christian woman's role in marriage is laughed at in our society. Praying for guidance in your decision in life is laughed at. Trusting God's word, the Bible is laughed at. Creation is laughed at. Christians are, are and, and, and unfortunately, too many Christians are tucking their tail between their legs and slithering away. And you probably heard Chick-fil-A is the latest casualty. They finally caved into the pressure of the LBGT. And they quit giving donations to the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes because they took a biblical stand against same-sex marriage. And Chick-fil-A was getting flack for that. And they caved. More and more, we are seeing that happen in the Christian community. Even though the ungodly laugh and they ridicule our way of living and our belief in God, it does not change who our God is and it does not annul God's work and it does not annul God's way. And it never will. It only condemns those who laugh. Jesus said in Luke 6.25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The psalmist said in Psalm 2, 1 and 4, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Verse 19, they said, notice, What is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? They were falsely accusing the Jews of rebellion. And that's one of the devil's favorite tactics. We'll see them use it later on in chapter 6. But it wasn't rebellion. The people weren't rebelling. Remember, Nehemiah had the authorization. He had the paper signed by the king. But these kind of people don't care about truth. They don't care about facts. They're not interested in truth because they hate God. And they hate his people and they hate his work. 
And we need to keep this in mind. We need to remember this all the time. When somebody in the church comes to you and makes an accusation about a brother or a sister or a leader in the church, don't give them. Or in other words, don't, don't give what they say much credibility until and unless they can prove it. And if church people insist on proof for all the accusations made by, by those that are gossiping, it would stop a lot of problems. But many times, the line or false accusation of somebody in the church, you know, it, 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 it is, is quickly believed. Listen to Deuteronomy 19.15. You must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The way Nehemiah dealt with the first attack here showed the enemy that Nehemiah wasn't some kind of weakling. Nehemiah's response was one that we are going to see more than once. Look at verse 20. Nehemiah said, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, I love this, we, his servants, will arise and build. That should be our battle cry, church. We, his servants, will rise and build. But you, he said to them, have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. They wouldn't defeat Nehemiah because of his strong faith in God. Nehemiah spoke about the faith that he had in God's power. And the enemy wasn't, uh, wasn't fighting the king, but he was fighting God and the work of God. So Nehemiah responded to the opposition with a great testimony of his faith in God. And he didn't let the enemy keep him from confessing his faith. He wasn't ashamed of his faith. He stood in his faith. And so many times Christians are pressured by fear to not stand up in their faith to God. A little ridicule or a little opposition and they quickly compromise or deny their faith. Verse 20, he says, Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. That is, arise and stand up against any opposition and continue to build the work for the kingdom of God. What a positive testimony to their commitment. May we have the same commitment. And you know what? This is the only way to respond to the enemy. When the enemy attacks, our answer needs to be firm and it needs to be convincing. But in order to have this powerful influence, we need to have a strong faith. Faith is followed by firmness. That's the way it always works. But if faith is weak, we're not going to be firm. We're not going to be strong. And, and if, if our, our convictions are little, our faith will be little. Nehemiah told the enemies, the opposers, he said, you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. In other words, you have no share, you have no legal right or historic claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah would not let the enemy have any part in God's work. And he wisely excluded them from joining in on the work. Now, in closing, the lesson here is about separation in God's work. That is, we can't compromise with the enemy and let them join us. Because you see, if they're allowed to be a part of God's work, they can sabotage it from within. 
Not only that, destruction from within because of a lack of separation with God's people is one of Satan's favorite moves. One of his most effective ways of attacking God's work. Now this is another area where churches have compromised and corrupted their ministries because they've joined up with, other, with, with the apostates. And when they do, pretty soon they compromise their message and their standards. Now, in the eyes of the world, and even other churches or Christians, separating from apostates is often looked at by a lot of people as being unchristian, unloving, divisive. And many would accuse Nehemiah of being all of these things which is the accusation made against those who won't be ecumenical. Come on, everybody, let's take the best of your church and let's take the best of our church and the best of this church and let's all put it together and let's just be one big happy church. Well, we're going to see that in the tribulation, great tribulation. Well, we're not going to see it, but that's what's going to happen in the great tribulation period. There's going to be one big happy church, the world church. You see, leaders who refuse to be a part of, of, of a local ministerial association or they refuse to be a part of a conference or a citywide campaign or other meetings because there are apostates there or there are cults there or there are unbiblical beliefs there, that's considered unloving. And, and we've had invitations to join city functions with many of you know, uh, other, other churches around the area. But again, because of, the, of being cults or unbiblical, I don't go. You know why? It says we're one big happy family if we do. That's what Nehemiah did here. You guys can't take part in this. This is the work of God. And you're not people of God. It's not that we, are, we claim to be better than anybody else. We're not. But we are representing the one and only God of creation. And we have to keep that line clear. But it never seems to occur to the critics that it wasn't Nehemiah who lacked the love. The love that should be for the work of God and the honor of God. It was the enemy of Israel. And the enemies of Nehemiah, it was Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem who was lacking love for God's work and lacking honor in building the walls. The truth is that Sanballat and his partners are filled with hate for God's work and God's honor. It's the same with the apostates. They don't love the truth. They despise it and they don't love God. They despise him. And their lack of love for truth and God is seen in things like their extreme denial of the virgin birth and the deity of Christ. So you see, Nehemiah was right. You can't join hands with the apostates in doing the work of God if you want to succeed in doing God's work. Amos said in Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? The answer is no. Two people can't walk together unless they have first met, talked things over, and agreed to continue on together. Because where there's no, 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 no friendship, there can't be any fellowship. If two people are at odds at each, with each other, they first have to solve their differences before they can you know, be, have any kind of fellowship between them. 
and there's one God and there's one truth. There are not many gods and there are not many truths that this world would like you to believe. Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And when he said that, he eliminated every other God and every other way and every other so-called truth and every other so-called life. So we need to know whom we serve. Father, we thank you again for Nehemiah and this powerful chapter, Lord. And Father, we must recognize that we are servants of the Most High God. And Lord, that we will not compromise and we will not sit down in the midst of sinners. We will not stand in the midst of the wicked. And we will not run with them, Lord. But Father, we will be separated unto our God. The one and only true living God. The world would love you to believe that there are many gods. And that there are many ways to get to heaven. It's a great thought, great idea. Who wouldn't want to, know, who wouldn't want to believe that? But Jesus said, I am the way, the only way. And nobody will get to heaven except through me. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you believe or, or, or go along with the world's idea of, of heaven and worship and God. That there are many gods in many ways. And everybody can choose to worship in their own way. But Jesus said, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. So there is a wrong way to worship. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God has spoken to your heart through the truth of his word, the truth of the spirit, And you take God at his word by faith. And you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles or the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith. Mm -hmm.